Hi, Denise. Hi, Amelia. How are you today? Good, thank you. How are you? Not too bad. I'm having some interesting... Hi, Katerina. Hi, Hi thank you for opening the room. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate it. Amelia, would you mind um, clicking on Dennis and my profile and make us moderators? So we can handle like the the people that have yeah exactly that have questions for you, so you don't have to take care of that. Great. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry Thank you. for being late. <laughs> no, that's all right. I just you know I I didn't want to be late, so <laughs> I was I was a little concerned that I would not be able to find the room, but it it showed popped right up. So. Yeah, I'll, um, in the meantime, I'll share it on Twitter. I'll add some topics to the top and add the link. So if I'm a little bit quiet, I'm, I'm doing this type of things. Right. I'll, uh, I... I'll put the, I'll put the note in the group chat. Oh yeah. Yeah. If you want to also enable the chat room for everyone. Do I need to do that or you can, you guys can do that. We got that part handled. Uh, oh, good. Katarina, what did you, what was the last thing you said? Uh, the, the chat room for everyone, if you want to enable it. If not, I'll do it in a sec. Okay, um, I would, oh, but I'm not quite sure what you mean. So I'll just send that group text to the people. Welcome, Leah and Jason. We'll be getting started momentarily. Thanks for coming by.
yeah hi everyone uh we'll get started in um in a few minutes like in two and then i'll introduce you to dr amelia galitano who will be talking about um her research today so uh, let's just wait a couple more minutes since the room was announced to be at 10 p.m est then we'll get started Hi, Katie. Hi, Leah. Hi, everyone. Hi, how are you today? Hi, it's Katie speaking. Thank you so much, Katarina, for organizing this. Hello, Dr. Galataniana, excuse my voice, uh, really excited for this event. And hi, Dennis. Hi, Nikisha. Hi, everyone. Hi, Hello. Good morning from India. Hi, Katie. Hi, everyone. Hi, Katrina. Thank you for coming. Meet uh, Dr. Amelia Galitano. She will be speaking today about her research. So it will be really exciting. Thanks for coming. Okay, it's um, it's 10 p.m. EST. Welcome everyone to the Science Society. We are very honored to have uh, Dr. Amelia Galitano here today. And as you can see by the title, she will talk um, about her um, research that is, um, yeah, I thought it really caught my eye. So I thought it was really interesting for everyone. And um, yeah, let me introduce you to um, uh, Dr. Amelia Galitano. She's a professor of basic medical science and psychiatry. Um, and the director, the neuroscience director of women in medicine and science, co-director and uh, of the MD PhD program, University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Um, and um, Dr. Galitana, she received her medical degree and PhD in neuroscience from the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. And she completed her residency training in psychiatry at Columbia University in New York and the New York State Psychiatry Institute. And then she did her postdoctoral research a fellowship at the Washington University of Medicine in St. Louis, where she was a faculty member in the Department of Psychiatry. Um, she joined the University of Arizona College of Medicine as one of the founding faculty members of the Phoenix campus in 2007. Yeah, and her research focused mostly on investigating how genes that um, are activated in the brain in response to stress may mediate the interaction of environmental stress and genetic predisposition of influence the development of psychiatry um, illnesses such as schizophrenia. So um, she is also a co-founder and director um, of the, the UACOM Phoenix Women in Medicine and Science program. And she is committed to 
supporting the advancements of women and individuals from groups that are underrepresented in the sciences and to mentoring trainees from all backgrounds who have a passion for neuroscience and medicine. And she um, also re received a bunch of awards. Um, she was selected as an Outstanding Woman in Business awardee by the Phoenix Business Journal. And she is a tenured professor. So yeah, we are very honored to have you, such an accomplished um, female scientist and doctor. And thanks for making the time to talk with us today. Thank you, Katrina. Thank you so much for your very kind uh, introduction and for inviting me. This is my first time um, on Clubhouse, so please excuse me if I do anything wrong. Um, I uh, welcome. <laughs> I had a quick thank you. I had a quick introduction um, last week that Katrina and Denis um, did for me, and a few others were there. And thank you very much. Um, so I am happy to be interrupted at any time with questions. Um, this is my first time giving a, a science talk in this format. So I, I may not um, be able to tell if somebody has a question very well, but I'm going to offer that Denise and or Katrina just go ahead and interrupt if um, if there's a question and I don't seem to recognize it, and yeah, you're gonna do great. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. Um, well, I might as well jump in. So my research interest um, aligns with my clinical with my clinical experience, which is as a psychiatrist, um, and so I'm interested in trying to understand how genes and environment may interact to increase risk and lead to the development of psychiatric illnesses. I'm interested in, in really all psychiatric illnesses, but most of my research has focused on schizophrenia. Um, but there's a shared, um, a lot of shared predisposing factors, we think, for many different psychiatric illnesses, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, major depressive disorder are, are sort of some of the main ones that have been most well studied. Um, but all psychiatric illnesses uh, can have a, a component that is, we think, environmental. And we're learning more about the genes and the genetic causes of psychiatric illness all the time. But we're at an interesting place, which is pretty far behind all other areas of medicine in the fact that we do not have a single gene yet that is known to cause any mental illness. Um, and in, these illnesses also differ from some kinds of medical illnesses in that it appears that there isn't going to be a gene or even a few genes that cause schizophrenia. Rather, there are hundreds of regions of the genome that are associated with risk for the illness. So it's a very complex disorder, and I'll I focus mostly on schizophrenia because that's where this, the studies have um, are really at the leading edge. But um, complex in that many genes are involved. No single, we don't know any of them 
definitively, but we know regions of the genome, and then there are some for which there's some evidence they may be playing a role. Um, no single gene is responsible for a large percentage of individuals that suffer from these illnesses. Rather, many, many, many genes <laughs> contribute a small effect size. Um, to risk. And then there's an environmental component. And so we know something about environmental factors that can increase risk for illnesses like schizophrenia. And these include things like prenatal exposure to infection, perinatal uh, traumatic events like uh, anoxia, for example, um, and early life stress and stressful life events are some of them. So in my lab, we focus on a family of genes that are expressed in the brain. They're activated in response to stimuli. So when neurons depolarize, when your brain is active, that upregulates expression of these genes. And they're called immediate early genes because they're sort of that first class of genes to be activated in neurons in response to a stimulus. And if you think about it, when, if we want to remember tomorrow that we had this event tonight, something has to change in our brains um, in a lasting way to be able to remember the event. And it turns out that this family of genes, the immediate early genes, play a critical role in memory formation. So they, they're at this nexus between what's going on in the outside world and carrying out the changes that will be lasting in the brain that likely are responsible for encoding memories. So the gene that we've studied most in my lab is called EGR3, early growth response gene three. And it functions as a transcription factor. And that means that it encodes a protein that binds to DNA and turns on and off the activity of other genes. So we think of this as sitting um, at that nexus between external events and it's a master regulator of the genes that will then be activated and go on to enact these processes like synaptic plasticity that are going to encode the memory for long term. So because uh, we identified early on in, in my research that EGR3 was activated downstream of a number of proteins that had been implicated in risk for schizophrenia. We hypothesized that EGR3 was not only um, associated with risk for the illness itself, but part of a cascade, a, a neurobiological cascade of proteins um, that if you disrupt any of the proteins, you're going to disrupt the function of the whole pathway. Um, and these, this pathway must be critical for processes like memory um, and synaptic plasticity. And these processes are disrupted, we know from animal studies and human studies in illnesses, mental illnesses. So we hypothesize that genes regulated by EGR3 as you know as its function as a transcription factor should also be playing a role in risk for the illness okay so 
that led us to ask, what are some of those genes regulated by EGR3? Um, and one of the ways that we studied this was to study mice that lack the EGR3 gene. We call these knockout mice. So when we went back, when I first developed this hypothesis, this was years ago when I was a postdoc, I thought, well, if EGR3 may be playing a role in potentially in schizophrenia, we would expect EGR3 knockout mice to have schizophrenia-like behavioral abnormalities. And we found through our testing that indeed they did. So the next step was to see if we administered an antipsychotic medication, medication uh, which is a, a medicine that we use to treat schizophrenia, that that should reverse some of these behavioral abnormalities. And we found that also was true. But we also found this really interesting, unique phenotype, which is that mice uh, that were wild type, normal, healthy mice, got very, very sedated when we gave them an antipsychotic drug, clozapine. When we gave the same drug to EGR3 knockout mice, they were walking around the cage and you couldn't tell which mouse got the drug and which got vehicle or placebo. And when I saw this, I thought, this is interesting because this is similar to what we see when patients are experiencing a psychotic episode and they come into the emergency room. They can be administered very high doses of these medicines, antipsychotic drugs, and still be walking around. Um, whereas people, sometimes we give these medicines to people that don't have schizophrenia or don't have psychosis, and they get extremely sedated, obtunded. It can last sometimes for days. Does somebody have a question? Um, ah, Dr. Ryerson? Not yet. She was just coming up and uh, unmuting, but perhaps I'm wrong. Okay. I know a Dr. Ryerson, and I'm wondering if it might be she. Um, okay. So uh, we thought, this is really interesting. This is a phenotype that looks like what we see in patients with schizophrenia. If we can figure out what is different in EGR, the brains of EGR3 knockout mice that's responsible for this phenotype, it could give us some insight into what's going on in the brains of patients with schizophrenia. Um, and it may also help us understand a little bit about the mechanism of action of clozapine and other antipsychotics, because even though these drugs are very, uh, have been around for decades and are extremely beneficial in treating schizophrenia, we still don't know exactly why they work. So, over a long period of time, we did what we call a pharmacologic dissection, and clozapine binds to many, many different receptors by studying the effects of drugs that bound to subsets of these receptors. We eventually figured out that a serotonin 2A receptor antagonist could reproduce the effect that we saw in otherwise, in other words, it decreased the motor activity and sedated wild type mice, but not the EGR3 knockouts. We then went in and looked in the brains of the mice and we found that indeed serotonin 2A receptors were low in the brains of the mice. And this was really interesting because when we went to the literature, we found that actually there's a long history of many studies that have shown that serotonin 2A receptors are also low in the brains of patients with schizophrenia. So here we thought we were gonna be able to find an abnormality using this method um, that, may be, that may be occurring in patients with schizophrenia, and indeed it was one that had already been shown to be. Serotonin 2A receptor is also interesting because it's one of the key 
binding uh, receptors, receptors bound by clozapine and all the drugs that we use to treat psychosis that um, have been modeled after clozapine. Um, and this is what we call the second generation antipsychotics. And this is the first line treatment that we use now in um, treating patients with psychosis. So um, our next thought was, well, if serotonin 2A receptors are low in EGR3 knockout mice, maybe that's because EGR3 normally in wild type mice is responsible for activating expression of the gene that encodes the serotonin 2A receptor. And this was interesting because as of that time and still until our study came out, there were no known transcription factors that regulate expression of this very important receptor. Um, so in addition to being an important receptor for binding antipsychotic medications, second generation, and being low in the brains of patients with schizophrenia, another really interesting fact about the serotonin 2A receptor is that it is the site of action of psychedelic drugs. And in fact, the definition of a psychedelic is that it produces um, this non-normal um, experience or uh, perceptual disturbances, or some people will call it hallucinations, um, via binding to the serotonin 2A receptor. And these are things like psych, uh, psilocybin, uh, magic mushrooms they're sometimes called, LSD and mescaline, they all bind to the serotonin 2A receptor. So the study that we just published um, was one in which we asked the question, um, if EGR3 is in fact responsible for regulating expression of the serotonin 2A receptor, then a stimulus, an environmental stimulus that upregulates expression of EGR3 should also upregulate expression of this serotonin 2A receptor that's downstream. So we used sleep deprivation because it was a stimulus that was known to upregulate expression of EGR3. And this had been shown um, in a paper from the Allen Institute, which is um, this really phenomenal um, brain research institute in Washington state. So we um, exposed animals to six hours of sleep deprivation. These are mice um, and compared them to paired animals that were allowed to sleep. And then we looked at whether we saw an increase in expression of serotonin 2A receptor. And we looked also in specific brain regions because the serotonin 2A receptor is very interesting. It's expressed in a gradient in the cortex. It's highly expressed in cortex. In a gradient where it's, it's very high in the front of the brain and it gets, the level of expression gets lower as you go back. So what did we find? We found that yes, six hours of sleep deprivation drastically increases expression of this very important receptor for perception, the serotonin 2A receptor in wild type mice. And that was not occurring in mice that lacked EGR3. We wanted to also make sure this was happening at the level of protein because our first study was at the level of mRNA. Um, and we often assume that mRNA will get encoded into protein, but we it's not always the case, so we have to check that. So we used a little bit longer sleep deprivation. We this time did eight hours of sleep deprivation 
and then used um, a method of receptor binding. So a radioactively labeled drug that binds to serotonin 2A receptors um, and looked at the expression levels um, or the binding in the brains of mice that had been wild type mice and EGR3 knockout mice that had been sleep deprived for eight hours compared to mice that were allowed to sleep. And we saw indeed that eight hours of sleep deprivation significantly increases levels of serotonin 2A receptor on the, on the cell membrane. Um, and this didn't happen again in the EGR3 knockout mice. So then remember our hypothesis was that because EGR3 is a transcription factor, the EGR3 should bind to the protein, should be binding to the promoter region of the serotonin 2A receptor gene. And the promoter is the region of the gene um, that controls expression of the gene. And so we identified two binding sites upstream of the serotonin 2A receptor gene that uh, were expected to bind EGR3. And then we used a method called chromatin immunoprecipitation, where you can use an antibody against EGR3 to pull down chromatin, which is the, the DNA in the cells, to see if EGR3 is indeed bound to these regions of the serotonin 2A receptor promoter where the binding sites that we had found existed. Um, and um, then you, you pull it down with an antibody and then you use primers uh, to do PCR to amplify a specific region, um, the region surrounding the binding site. And we found indeed that EGR3 was binding to the promoter of the serotonin 2A receptor gene. And then it you could have a situation where the transcription factor is bound to that promoter, but not actually regulating gene expression. So to test that, we used an in vitro model and cell culture model. Um, and we used a, what's called a reporter assay, a gene expression reporter assay. And that's where you, you can take that region of the promoter that has the EGR3 binding site, and you link it instead of to the, serotonin 2A receptor gene, you replace the gene with a reporter construct. And in this case, we use a firefly luciferase. So then in culture, when you incubate this, the cells that contain this reporter construct and you overexpress EGR3 in those cells, we saw an increase in that fluorescence of the, um, the firefly luciferase. Um, and that didn't occur in the absence of um, adding EGR3 or adding a control uh, protein. Um, so that showed, at this point, we showed that EGR3 in animal brains is um, bound to the promoter of the serotonin 2A receptor gene. Um, we see increase in that binding after six hours of sleep deprivation. So that's this, this stimulus that we use that increases the serotonin 2A receptor expression. And in vitro, that binding is able to turn on expression of the, of the gene. Um, and then um, that led us to conclude um, a number of things that, um, number one, that 
we think it's kind of amazing that you can increase levels of this very important receptor for processes like perception and we think also cognition um, in a matter of just a few hours and in response to what what we consider a physiologic stimulus um, sleep deprivation you know many of us get sleep deprived on a regular basis so we thought that was very interesting and this is the first identification of a mechanism that regulates expression of this receptor and we think it may have some implications for um, illness uh, the illness schizophrenia which is characterized by low levels of not only the serotonin 2a receptor but also egr3 um, so i think maybe that's a good stopping place for questions if people have it any yeah, thank you so much for that really great introduction. Um, it's, yeah, your paper is so interesting. Um, my immediate question would be um, for the future, are you planning to do maybe uh, sleep deprivation or disruption of um, uh, during development and see, you know, because when we talk about schizophrenia, I'd like to compare it um, I don't know if that's still the case, but um, the, it's quite also related to um, stress during, I think, late childhood and early childhood, or at least there there was supposed to be a correlation. So, um, you know, during stress times, probably there's also disruption in sleep. Um, are you planning in the future maybe to um, disrupt sleep and developing pups and see if, if um, in adults, maybe there's like a schizophrenia-like disorder. Um, Katharina, that's a great idea. <laughs> I hadn't actually thought about doing it in, in, um, in pregnant animals, for example, pregnant dams, um, and looking at the outcome on, on the pups. Um, it's interesting because in a wild type, we would expect this increased expression. There's a, there's a, a real paradox with the serotonin 2A receptor, um, which is, I wanna answer your question without getting off the topic into the paradox. But so if, if we sleep deprive the animals that we expect would increase the serotonin 2A receptor. And what we see in schizophrenia brains is a, a decrease in receptor levels. But it's it's definitely not gonna be that simple. Um, the so but it's a great idea. I hadn't I hadn't thought about doing it in, in pups and I think it's an excellent idea. There are um, a lot of studies showing that yes that stress, prenatal stress changes behavior later in life of the pups when they after they're born and after they're developed um they'll they'll have behavioral abnormalities in young adulthood and adulthood um other models are also used in animals like prenatal exposure to infection as a schizophrenia like model so yes it would be very interesting we we used sleep deprivation because we know we don't actually know about many different types of stress that are known to regulate EGR3 in the brain. Um, EGR3 is a, one of four EGR family transcription factors, EGR1, 2, 3, and 4. And EGR1 is 
has been very, very widely studied, uh, much more so than EGR3. And lots of different types of stress and lots of different stimuli lead to its activation, but we know fewer for EGR3. So it, it's a great question. It would be very interesting to look at. It also brings up another point, which is um, this was acute sleep deprivation one time for six hours. And we don't know that the same thing will happen with chronic sleep deprivation. And the reason I bring that up is that immediate early genes are interesting. They are activated in response to stimuli, yes, but there's an important component of novelty. So they play really important roles in the hippocampus where if you put an animal in a novel environment and it walks around and investigates and learns about that environment, that's a, an intense stimulus to upregulate expression of EGR3 and EGR1 and other genes in this class. But if you put that animal in that environment several days in a row, you don't see that upregulation after several days. So in that um, scenario, that's led us to think that immediate early genes are activated by being in a novel environment, or at least their expression in the hippocampus is triggered by novelty. Um, does that, can we translate that to our situation of sleep deprivation and say that, well, one night of sleep deprivation or six hours, acute sleep deprivation may upregulate EGR3 and 2A and other presumably other genes regulated by EGR3, but many nights of sleep deprivation might not. We don't know the answer to that yet. Um, and I would think that, sorry, to, and then I'll shut up, um, that, um, that that's important because then we would, we would assume that we'd have to chronically sleep deprive a dam for the pups to have an effect, I, I, hopefully, because we wouldn't want it would be a sad state if just one night of sleep deprivation could cause a permanent, you know, detrimental effect um, on the brain. But um, but all this has to be investigated. Okay. Yeah, I just wanted to answer. Um, during development, what often happens is that um, when you upregulate something late in um, adult mice, it's actually um, downregulated because the brain tries to compensate um, quite and does a really good job, especially during development. We, for example, exposed during development um, um, in very young pups the uh, um, SSRIs. And then what happens actually later in life, um, all the, the receptors um they are then actually uh, the the effect is actually then the opposite so that's why i ask um to do that during development because you have basically the opposite effect than um you see in sleep deprivation but yeah it could be totally not true but it would be an interesting question that's that's really interesting that you point that out thank you for um sharing that information. I, I don't think I was aware that that is a, a typical thing, that the opposite happens later uh, in life from the stimulus to pups. Thank you. Yeah, like with dopamine and stuff like that, if you have a lot of exposure during development, 
then later on because the brain then compensates if that happens during well that's what a few i i'm not sure if it's a normal thing but it it can happen so that's why it, i think it would be interesting but yeah i'll let other people ask questions thank you so much so i had a question two questions really um because you had already covered the chronic might be a chron chronic sleep deprivation might have different results um i was curious so there were a six and an eight hour period i was wondering why not 12 or, or obviously there's a gap of two or basically the question is is there a point of diminishing returns on this and also uh, the serotonin 2a receptor is that only present in the brain or is it also present in the gut or other areas i understand that you were studying it at the brain but um great questions okay um so the the there's a very simple reason why we used six hours of sleep deprivation, and that's because that was the protocol. We used the exact same protocol that had been used by the Allen Institute group, um, to sh and they had that they had used and shown this significant upregulation of EGR3, um, and they also did um, a component where they let animals recover for two hours of sleep versus keeping animals awake for eight hours. Um, so we we added two hours, mm, somewhat influenced by the fact that they had done this, you know, the, the six hour sleep deprivation and two hour recovery, and then some animals had been kept awake the whole eight hours. But also ballpark, we figured that was gonna be enough time for translation to, to occur. And, you know, this is based on it, it are you know sort of ballpark stud but there there's definitely that's definitely sufficient time for transcription and translation to occur um in some paradigms but um yeah so it was somewhat arbitrary but based off of this original study um the second part of your question now i'm forgetting can you uh, remind the, me? Those receptors only in the brain, or are they also found in the gut or other areas? Oh yes, and so you you must have some insight into this already because yes, absolutely, they're found in the gut. Um, and serotonin has um, is highly um, it, serotonin receptors are highly expressed throughout the gut, and there's something called the enteric nervous system that you're probably aware of, um, and sometimes referred to as the brain in the gut. It's a very extensive, uh, large network of neurons, and many of them are serotonergic, and 2A receptors are definitely expressed there. Um, and that's part of the reason that um, serotonin SSRIs, serotonin selective reuptake inhibitors, can have GI side effects because there are affecting serotonin levels in the gut and the gut has lots of serotonin receptors. Yes, Katie. Hi, it's Katie. Sorry, Amelia, I know you're new to Clubhouse. If you see any of us like putting our mics on and off, that usually means that we are clapping, um, applauding. So that's what I was doing. I'd love to ask a question in a moment. And I'm so glad Dr. Rearson is here as well. It likely is exactly the same person that you were um, 
alluding to that you might know. So I'll ask a question in a moment. Sorry for interrupting this. I just wanted to let you know if you see us flashing our mics, we're clapping for you. Thank you so much. Um, didn't he, um, did, so, um, I, yeah, I, I don't know. That answered I, the question. Did I answer that, a question? That answered the question for sure. Thank you. Um, just a quick, uh, two quick uh, questions, please. The first Sorry, we were, totally, totally, hold on. Uh, we're going to go to Katie and Frank. We're going to go through some order. We'll get to you, my friend. Hi, it's Katie speaking. Yeah, um, thank you so much for your question, Kayled. Would love to hear from you. Just to let everyone know in the room, it's sometimes a little bit easier too that we try and um, follow the order of the speakers, um, what some of us call PTR order, like pull to refresh. If you put your thumb down on the screen and pull down, you can see like the order of speakers. We just want to make sure that we hear from everyone on stage because sometimes you know, we have um, voices that aren't heard. So that's what we're trying to do. Um, Amelia, Dr. Galatano, um, thank you so much. This is such an exciting study. Really look forward to looking into it. Um, I'm surprised Dennis hasn't brought up the question that we do every single time. And again, why I'm really glad Dr. Rearson is here as well. Um, I'm sure it's not the focus of your particular study at the moment, but as we know, um, the ACE2 receptors has a role in COVID and as a long COVID patient myself, I'm also a scientist and a geneticist. So this is like, and also extremely sleep deprived in my previous life as I was working 18 hours a day in a genetics lab and all the fun things that goes along with being a woman in science. Um, I'm wondering if, you know, you feel like sleep deprivation might have a role. And again, I understand this is not the particular focus of your study. Um, but as we know, you know, patients that have COVID and uh, COVID survivors and have long COVID, um, you know, there's, and I can certainly pin or send the specific scientific papers, have an increase in either psychological or um, neurological conditions. Um, there was a paper that was published in the Lancet last year or perhaps the year before at this point um, with over 200 COVID survivors, so a really large sample size, and a third of them had um, psychiatric or neurological conditions post-COVID that didn't have this previously. Um, I'm just wondering, to sum it up, my question is, um, and again, understanding it's not your specific field of study, whether um, sleep deprivation and stress with the role of the ACE2 receptor, um, if this could contribute to you know, some of us that have long COVID. Um, and again, you know, I'm sure Dr. Rearson would love to chime in on this as well. And thank you for being here. Thank you, it's Katie, I'm complete. Hi, Katie. Um, wow, um, first of all, thank you so much for your um, for your your kind words and your also for sharing your background. Um, and I'm sorry that you've suffered from long COVID and you're absolutely right that um, I think we, we do need to be concerned. As I mentioned, this exposure to infection, in utero exposure to infection is a risk factor for schizophrenia. And this is not addressing your question specifically, but I am definitely concerned that um, that we may, you know, 18 years from now, 
um, see a, a rise, a peak, a bump in, in rates of schizophrenia. Um, but in terms of what's happening directly in the in in patients who are um, inf who get infections with COVID, I I will need to defer to Dr. Rearson because I don't know that much about what's going on in the brain. What I there are um, cases of individuals who have had first new onset psychosis in adults, so beyond the age when we would typically think of. Um, some uh, illness like schizophrenia occurring. Um, people who never had um, psychosis in their life and now after resolution of COVID, they suddenly develop psychosis. And there, I got very interested in that because there are a number of autoimmune encephalitides that, um, that can cause psychosis like anti-NMDA receptor um, autoimmune encephalitis. And there, in fact, so I, I did actually some very intensive reading on this and wrote a grant that didn't get funded. Um, but to, to see if that might be the case in individuals uh, who are experiencing psychosis after COVID infection. Um, and I, in that reading, there are definitely, I think, of the studies that I found that in which um, CSF had been collected and tested for autoimmune um, autoantibodies, there were cases where they were found, but I haven't followed up so much. So um, I think beyond that, because I am not an expert in, in COVID, um, I, I would be speculating, which I hesitate to do because I know that people that have long COVID become incredible experts in and are way more knowledgeable than I am. So, um, but I will also comment about the sleep abnormalities. Um, sleep abnormalities are a feature of almost every major mental illness. Um, and we have a real conundrum here with cause and effect. Um, so yes, we are studying the acute gene expression changes in the frontal cortex in an animal model of sleep deprivation. How does that relate to chronic sleep deprivation? We already have touched on, you know, that it's, it, it um, we'd have to do the studies to be sure. And then in the reverse, how does, uh, how do um, illnesses, mental illnesses then have an effect on sleep? as a consequence. And that's, that's a whole other ballgame. Um, so I think I should stop um, just to provide, oh, what, one more thing though that I did want to add, which is really fascinating, is that um, it has been known since the 1970s that acute sleep deprivation has a, like a 24-hour sleep deprivation or overnight, full night of sleep deprivation in humans has rapid antidepressant properties, which is that was one of the earliest um, treatments that that produced a rapid antidepressant effect. As you, many of you probably know, treatment with SSRIs, um, the effects are not instantaneous. They can take many weeks to, to happen. Um, so this was, of course, very interesting to me that maybe there's 
the, the genes that we're seeing induced may be playing a role in that antidepressant effect. The problem with this as a therapy is that when people would then sleep, then their depression would return. So it's not, you know, therapeutically um, tenable to do that, but uh, very interesting. And it also points out that um, acute and chronic sleep deprivation have different consequences. So. I'll, I'll stop. Hi, it's Katie speaking. Thank you so much. Um, great answer. Obviously, I'm really nerding out on this conversation. Um, so thank you so much for being here. And again, you know, I'm so passionate about women in science and STEM. So I'm really excited to have you here. Um, if anybody else, just let me have a quick moment. Um, if anyone wants to come on stage, please feel free to raise your hand. Also feel free to invite others to the room. Um, by pressing the little, well, now it's an arrow thing, like you can either share the room or bring other people into the room. I know that Dr. Rearson would love to chime in on this. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Rearson. Um, I saw you on mic before, so I'll turn it to you. It's Katie, I'm complete. Hi, Amelia. Good to see you here. Um, yeah, so the one thing that I think is very interesting about Katie's question is that large proportion of individuals with acute COVID, especially severe acute COVID, have autoantibodies to the 5-HT2A receptor. So it's very interesting that this is, uh, you know, to me that it's being regulated by the EGR3. And, and I just wonder what those connections might be or whether there might be any answers there um, about, um, you know, the, the etiology of some of the sleep disturbances that we're seeing. In, um, in long COVID as well as some of the psychiatric symptoms that we see, um, whether that might be related to these uh, autoantibodies to those 5-HT2 uh, receptors, which are oftentimes activating antibodies. So they, um, they actually have an action on the receptor um, to activate it. Um, and this, I think, could probably cause a lot of different types of um, psychiatric and neurological symptoms, even um, GI symptoms, um, and I and I believe those types of are involved with um, uh, kind of uh, signaling uh, with uh, serotonin from platelets as well. So, so there's a lot of things that could be going on there. Another interesting thing is that uh, these 5-HT2 autoantibodies have also been seen in individuals who have had traumatic brain in injuries. And um, uh, I, I find that particularly interesting because several uh, long haulers who I've spoken to who had a prior history of a brain injury have told me that um, with long COVID, they felt very much like they did after the brain injury. And so I just wonder whether um, antibodies to the 5-HT2 receptor might have anything to do with those similarities and symptoms between long COVID and kind of post-brain injury um, symptoms. Any comments on that? Thanks. Hi, Angela. It's so great that you're here. Thank you so much for coming. Um, wow. I did not know that about, I, I had been, like I said, I had had this phase, it was, you know, six months to even a year ago when I was, I got this idea and wrote this grant, but I haven't followed up on the autoantibodies and I didn't know that about um, serotonin 2A and autoantibodies and the fact that they're activating. 
fascinating. So one could hypothesize if they're activating that the effect of those autoantibodies in the brain could be to cause perceptual disturbances similar to what you see with serotonin 2A receptor agonists like psilocybin, LSD, and mescaline. Um, interestingly, not all agonists at the 2A receptor do cause um, psychedelic-like effects. But um, And there's also a very big difference between the hallucinations of schizophrenia and the effects of psychedelics. Um, so all that put together. But this is super fascinating. Um, and you're right that you, 2A receptors specifically are highly expressed on platelets. Um, and yes, to the GI side effects, this is super fascinating. And I can't wait to talk to you more about it. And we should work on something together, write a grant. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know what else to say, um, because it's, you know, I think you've gone beyond my, my knowledge level. I'm sure we'll talk about that later. Yeah. <clears throat> Hi, it's Katie speaking. Oh my gosh, thank you so much, Dr. Rearson. Great answer, um, Dr. Galliatano. And I'm sorry if I mispronounce your name, that's also part of my um, ongoing issues with my brain, thanks to COVID. Um, and, you know, I just want to also emphasize the magic of Clubhouse. And, you know, even though people might be connected, it just provide such a great platform for us to have these amazing conversations. Um, and thank you so much again for being here. I just wanted to, we've got quite a few people on stage. If anyone could flash their mic now, if you would like to speak um, and ask a question um, and we'll make sure we turn it to you. I see you flashing Suzanne and I know Caleb, you had a question as well. So we'll do Suzanne. Caleb, and if anyone else wants to come up, please feel free to raise your hand. Um, we'd love to hear from you and we'll bring you up. You can ask a question. Suzanne, I'll, I'll turn it over to you. And again, <laughs> apologies if I mispronounce everyone's name um, once again. So thank you. That was perfect. You said it perfectly. Hi, I am uh, Suzanne Alavi and I'm making a documentary about early childhood trauma and the effects of early childhood trauma. One thing I, I'm very curious about is, and again, someone had mentioned this, if you had done any studies about head trauma and how that might affect children, especially later in life. And someone also asked about the in utero connection, so I got that answer. My other quick question is, was there any correlation with um, drug use being a triggering factor along with is early childhood trauma ever a triggering factor? Thank you. Um, so early life trauma, hmm, um, there, for as a risk factor for schizophrenia, perhaps. Um, um, can I assume that's what you're asking? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Um, so yes, we we talk about in a very general way. Um, stressful life events and trauma is definitely a stressful life event and those happening in early childhood do increase risk for schizophrenia and also for many other psychiatric illnesses um that's 
probably the the level to which I you know I, I'm not on top of all of the most current studies but um, and and these are tough studies to do um, because you have to ask people about prior history and it's these are done by people with expertise in epidemiology and and um, there and probably dr. Rierson has more experience than I do with these kinds of human studies but they are very difficult to do because you're gonna have selection bias or people will be more likely to think about events that happened if they manifest an illness right um, because it's natural at any time any of us even we we our stomach gets upset and we think immediately oh maybe it must be you know and we're trying to think about reasons why maybe it was this thing that I ate or that that other thing that I expose myself to um, so it's hard to control for those um, prospective studies are the best kind where you could take a cohort of individuals say children that got um, had um, a traumatic brain injury because you, you were mentioning about brain trauma or exposure to traumatic events um, and then identify control group of kids you know with similar backgrounds um, or from similar regions of the world or city country whatever um, and then follow them prospectively it's hard to do that on illnesses that are relatively low frequency schizophrenia is about 0.5 to 1 percent of the population so you really need a huge cohort um, and it's hard to get funding to follow people for you know 10 20 years but um, those are the ideal kinds of studies to do that so there's a long answer but to say that yes you're right that um, childhood traumatic experience does increase risk for schizophrenia and for other psychiatric illnesses Oh, I didn't want you to, to interrupt you, sorry. Uh, they, there's one like big study which doesn't have um, anything to do with brain injuries, but um, the first real big epigenetic study or when people came up with like epigenetic mechanisms uh, was actually in the Netherlands when there was the big flood uh, years after uh, there was a, like a really spike in um, a people that uh, had schizophrenia and um, uh, people asked themselves why and it was uh, so they could trace it back to uh, women that were pregnant during that time and experienced uh, scarcity due to this huge flood so they had they were cut off of supplies so they there was like hunger and and stress and stuff going on and you could pinpoint it really to that year um, kids born um, after you know from women that were pregnant during that uh, quite significant event so um, so this pinpoint like since then people think that um, stress factors can have like can elicit like gene expression mechanisms that then later on in adult life lead to like mental health disorders. That's like the biggest and the quite exceptional study 
um, but um, and there are other related study like from public records in the in North Europe, like Scandinavian uh, countries that are similar. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not sure if that um, answers your question. Which I wanted to ask Amelia a question. Um, you know, I read the paper about um, serotonin related epigenetic mechanisms. I think the term was serotonilation. Um, is any, um, are you also looking into um, like epigenetic mechanisms in your study? Um, I haven't looked at that. Um, and um, mostly just because um, yeah, that's a, just a methodology that we haven't really um, been using in our lab. People tend to sort of, uh, you probably know this in science, to, to focus in certain areas. And there are, are groups that study epigenetics and that hasn't tended to be our, our area. So I, I don't think I can answer that, but we haven't looked, yeah. And you're right. I. I don't know if it's the same study that you're referring to, but there is definitely an association between famine and increased risk for schizophrenia based on the exact types of approaches that you're that that example was from. So I don't I don't know if that if there's additional other famines that also led to spikes in schizophrenia or if it's the same one that you're referring to. Yeah, I just know one that has a positive effect. Um, so in, in Scandinavian villages, when men, when boys are exposed to famine, when they're around tw in their tweens, so before they're teenagers, after they're like small kids, then the next generation of, um, of males are supposed to have a less risk for diabetes and obesity and um, cardiovascular disease but um so i read this at some point but not like that you know i i don't know what um later on people continue to study so that's the only one i know that that's supposed to have a positive effect which was quite puzzling to me i was gonna add as far as the um the famine uh, cases like say where cities have been under siege or something and there hasn't been adequate nutrition for women during their pregnancies. It's thought that part of the reason for the increased risk of schizophrenia in their offspring might be vitamin deficiencies, particularly folic acid, which is very important for brain development. Mm, yes, good point. Thank you, Angela. Yeah, very interesting. Call it? Um, yeah, please. I uh, just want to ask a few questions in a brief. Um, my first one, was there any correlation within the sample that you made the experiment on? Especially when, it's come to, uh, when it comes to serotonin, I think like from 80 to 90% is being synthesized within the gut and the intestinal microbiota. So was there any correlation between the diet and the microbiome of the sample itself? This is my first question. My second question, you were saying, uh, referring to the ERG3 uh, 
gene is it being expressed in the forehead and more than in the backward so is there any um, i mean localization of the expression of the gene itself and especially with a sleep deprivation uh, stimuli um, uh, did you make any studies on other uh, proteins related to circadian rhythm? I mean, like leptin or angerlin hormone level during uh, the day. And also, if it comes to seasonal changes, especially with the difference between winter and summer and exposure to sunlight, so it may affect the quality of the sleep itself and the seasonal. Uh, genes that are being associated with autoimmunity, uh, I mean, immunity and so on. So this is a brief, thank you. Hi, Khaled, thank you for the questions. Okay, I, I'm gonna work backwards and um, I may need you to remind me about the first question when we get to it. So um, starting with the end, so you mentioned um, circadian rhythms. So one of the early findings about EGR3 is that it is activated in um, regions of the brain that are, are known to be important in regulating circadian rhythms in response to exposure to light. So um, that has was one of the early findings that suggested that EGR3 may be at least it's activated in response to um, light in a circadian rhythm uh, in a clock regulatory area of the brain. Um, what are some other findings that we have EGR3 studied extensively EGR3 deficient mice and they have abnormal sleep patterns and um, particularly in the the changing in the period where lights go on and in the end of the day and the beginning of the day, lights transitioning from lights off to on and lights on to off. That's when they show their biggest abnormalities in, in their biggest differences with wild type or healthy mice. Um, and then we have also, and we're about to publish a paper showing genes regulated by EGR3 in the hippocampus. And some of these are circadian rhythm genes, um, the period, some of the period genes. Um, and we have a new study that we're just beginning to analyze data looking at individual single, we use single cell RNA sequencing um, to look at gene expression changes in individual cells in the frontal cortex after six hours of sleep deprivation. And we see some very interesting changes in circadian rhythm related genes in the frontal cortex. Um, and we also had in this study also looked in EGR3 knockout mice and we see some differences that are just um, induced, differences in circadian genes that are just induced by sleep deprivation in healthy animals. And then we see other genes, circadian, rhythm regulated or associated genes that um, in which EGR3 appears to be playing a role. Um, so now I've gone off a whole lot on <laughs> circadian rhythms. Can you go back and remind me of another question that you asked? 
First of all, that's wonderful your work and uh, within the genes and hope you get all of your upcoming uh, papers being published so easily. So my first question was, uh, was there any correlation uh, within the specimen that you were working on uh, with the, the gut microbiome as I, I got it that the serotonin as a neurotransmitter is being like 80 to 90% from the human need of it is being synthesized uh, by the gut and the intestinal microbiota. So uh, was, was there any correlation between that or is this still being to be looked further into the future? Hmm. Yes, thanks. Thanks for the reminder. Um, so we did not in this study look at the gut microbiota. Um, there's, um, it was just beyond the focus of the study. There's only so much you can do. Um, there's lots of great questions to ask and, and limited time and, and resources and funding. So we, we, we weren't able to investigate that in this study. Um, I think you also mentioned something about the immune system and this family of genes that we study, the EGRs, um, and they, uh, in addition to the four EGR transcription factors, there's also co-regulatory binding proteins. These are proteins that bind to the transcription factor together as a complex um, bind to DNA to co-regulate expression of, of genes. And uh, these are the NABs, NAB1 and NAB2. Um, all of these genes also play important roles in the immune system and in um, T cells, for example. Um, so there's long been a recognition of an association between immune system dysfunction and schizophrenia and likely also other disorders. And so that was part of our excitement about studying this particular family of genes um, when we first when I first started thinking about them as potentially playing a role in, in schizophrenia, it was because they also played this important role in the immune system. And there, they are also the first set of genes to come on in response to a stimulus. So for example, in T cells, that stimulus is binding of a ligand to the T cell receptor. Um, and that leads to upregulation of expression of these genes in T cells. Um, did you have another part of your question that I, may or may not be able to answer? Uh, quite the contrary, you have <laughs> covered it in a really fascinating way. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for your interest in your um, many questions. Hi, it's Katie speaking. Thank you, Khaled, and thank you, um, Dr. Amelia, once again. Really fascinating discussion. Um, just a reminder, if you would like to come on stage, please raise your hand, we'll bring you up. Um, we have not heard from, I know Victoria is unavailable right now, we haven't heard from Frank, Dr. Shaw, Silva, and we now also have Money Penny on stage, but please raise your hand if you'd like to come up. And also just if you look to the left hand, bottom, uh, bottom left hand side of your screen, you will see that we've got the new uh, chat box enabled. So if you don't want to come up on stage, that's absolutely fine. You're more than welcome to ask your questions there and we can relay them. Um, I know that Dr. 
char unmind so i will turn it to you and then we'll make sure that we get to you solver and money penny as well and anyone else who wants to come up and please feel free to ping people into the room um share the room using the little um third <laughs> third little icon on the bottom left hand corner of your screen that'll um share the room to everyone in clubhouse or if you want to ping people in so thank you so much. Really enjoying this conversation. Once again, thank you, Katerina, for organizing such an amazing speaker. Thank you, Dr. Amelia, for being here. I'm going to turn it to you, Dr. Shah. Thank you. It's Katie and I'm finished speaking. Quick, quick housekeeping. Um, Amelia, how much time do you have? Well, quick. I'm yeah. um, lucky. I'm two hours earlier than you are. So I and I have nothing else after this. So except eventually going to bed. But um, not for quite a while, so I'm happy to stay on as long as people have questions. Fantastic, thank you. Dr. Shah, to you. Thank you so much. Thank you both uh, Amelia and Katie. That was absolutely fascinating paper. It just remind me about the paper which is just published back in time about the role of the not only EGR2, uh, as I remember that was both EGR2 and EGR3 as a transcriptional regulator in prevent of excessive accumulation of CD21, uh, which is the atypical memory B cells. And uh, these cells actually accumulate in a chronic infectious autoimmune disease and immunodeficiency. And that was very interesting to me when you just pointed out about, I mean, these transcriptional regulators and their relationship, actually. Thank you so much for sharing this information. Oh, you, um, well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad to hear that you have some um, background knowledge and interest in uh, the EGRs. And I, I, I just quickly did a, a search while you were mentioning that, and I see this paper that you're talking about. Um, and I, I can't remember, I, I'll have to look back at it, but, um, if I haven't read it, thank you for bringing it to my attention. Um, thank you for your time. Thank you for coming and thank you all for coming. Hi, it's Katie speaking. Thank you so much. Um, I know that we have Solva next on stage and he's already asked a question in the chat, but would love to turn it to him so you can ask your question in person. Thank you. Hi, it's Katie. I'm not sure if it's Hi, me. I, sure can't it's me. I can't hear you, Silva. It's not just you, Katie. Um, Silva, maybe try muting and unmuting. Uh, I didn't uh, we can hear now? now. Go ahead. That's better. Go ahead. Yeah, okay. Uh, thank you, Dr. Galetano, for this uh, wonderful talk. Uh, the question that I had was, I was wondering about the effect of sleep deprivation on the symptoms of schizophrenic patients. Hmm, that's a really good question. Um, is, is that the end of your question or did, did you have more, Silva? Uh, 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 yeah, that's the end of the question. Yeah. Um, thank you. Yeah, thank you for asking. Uh, so. Um, so first I'll say that what we, what, 
comes to mind most quickly is not specifically about schizophrenia patients, but um, what I already told you about the antidepressant effect of sleep deprivation is somewhat consistent with the effect that sleep deprivation can have in patients with bipolar disorder or schizoaffective disorder. And that's that it can trigger manic episodes. Um, so we as psychiatrists will counsel our patients that have bipolar disorder or um, schizoaffective disorder is a disorder that you could think about as being um, sort of halfway between bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. Um, there's a major affective component, meaning either depression or mania. Um, so sleep deprivation can trigger mania. Um, how about schizophrenia? I am not so aware of studies that specifically address whether sleep deprivation has any um, effects in terms of increasing symptoms in patients with schizophrenia. We do know that poor sleep, and again, this is that you know cause versus effect question that we we brought up earlier. Um, poor sleep is a characteristic of schizophrenia as well as many other disorders. We think of it very typically um, poor sleep as or difficulty sleeping as being a characteristic of depression, certainly of mania when people are in the, the activated state of mania, they have um, decreased need for sleep and difficulty sleeping. But um, in schizophrenia, they also have disrupted sleep and overall decreased sleep often. But I don't know honestly, whether um, sleep deprivation is known to affect the symptoms in schizophrenia directly. Uh, Dr. Rierson, if you happen to know, feel free to unmute and chime in. Well, I think certainly, I mean, sleep can affect the mood in a lot of different ways and um, could certainly increase or decrease certain symptoms um, if, if somebody gets not enough sleep. But um, I'm not sure exactly how, um, if there's been specific studies on schizophrenia looking at how uh, more or less sleep affects symptoms there. Uh, Selva, does that answer your question? I'm sorry. I that we didn't know, but the fact that Dr. Rearson also no, doesn't know suggests to me that it um, that probably uh, there aren't that many studies the way there are for other disorders like uh, uh, like mania and and depression. Hi, it's Katie speaking. I see that you're on mic, Selva. We can't hear you again. Um, perhaps trying to trying to mute and unmute, and we might be able to hear you. Oh no, it's not working at the time. Hi, it's Katie. Otherwise, Solva, you're more than welcome. Sometimes Clubhouse can be very glitchy. If you leave the room and come back, you won't lose your position on stage um, and we can refer back to you. Um, and that sometimes fixes the little glitch that Clubhouse has. 
Um, but thank you so much, Dr. Amelia, for your answer. Um, we have Ms. Moneypenny Nick on stage next. Um, please feel free to ask your question or give a comment. We'd love to hear from you. That's Katie and I'm done speaking. Hi, it's Katie. Can anyone else hear me? Yes. Yeah. Yes, thanks. Okay, cool. Thank you. Um, Ms. Moneypenny, Nick, we can't hear you. Um, please feel free to unmic. We can't hear you. Um, otherwise, same thing. Leave the room and come back. Clubhouse seems to be a little bit glitchy today, but we'd love to hear your question. And anyone else, please feel free to raise your hand. Um, you know, so honoured to have Dr. Amelia here. And also one thing um, just to point out too, if you go to the top of the room, you will see um, a pinned link, which is the manuscript that has been discussed um, during this conversation. So you can have a read through, understand, you know, science papers take a bit to digest. So you're more than welcome to read it later, save it, um, but otherwise just ask a question. Um, Money Penny, I'll try you once again. Are you available to speak? Hi, it's Katie. Um, Selva, we couldn't hear you. Money Penny, we can't hear you either if you're trying to speak. Um, but while we have um, everyone, hello. Oh, can hear you now. Can hear oh. you now. Go ahead, love. <laughs> oh, sorry about that. Um, looking from the military perspective, um, I come from a military family. I'm fascinated by sleep depth, as they call it. Um, and the studies that have shown that sleep depth, the reason or the the argument that is used for sleep depth training in the military is that the body adjusts um, the chemical response um, and overcomes the, the threatened uh, psychiatric neurological response by having sleep depth training on a regular basis. It accustoms the body to being able to survive um, you know, that sort of survival instinct on less sleep, therefore going forward. So the idea in the military to sleep debt people is to do it more regularly so that an army can march on three hours rather than six type thing. But it was particularly used in submarines. Um, how would that compare with what's coming up from study, um, Dr. Amelia? Um, hi, Money Penny. Thank you. That's a great question, I, and I um, I don't know that much about the the training and the the sort of chronic training for sleep deprivation in the military. So that's very interesting. Um, so, you know, I, I I think from our study, we really can't um, make conclusions about the gene expression differences in the brain that would be happening following chronic sleep deprivation. What you're bringing up is, so we think of acute sleep deprivation, chronic sleep deprivation, and what it sounds like you're describing is a more periodic sleep deprivation where there may be periods of chronic or sort of medium chronic um, 
um, phases of sleep deprivation intermingled with with recovery periods. Um, very interesting. I'm not sure how much we can glean from this from our study. We'd have to do a, a you know a similar study looking at chronic. It, but it brings up other interesting questions to which I don't have an answer. I'll just put it out there right now. But we, I. I remember reading books um, written by authors suggesting that you teach yourself to rely on less sleep. And um, one book that I read was about saying, you know, you can train your body slowly to get used to sleeping only six hours a night and you become more sleep efficient. And there's, there, there is maybe some uh, evidence, you know, these are older studies about the idea that your sleep can become less efficient if you sort of lie in bed too long or you take naps. Um, but this, so that's an interesting question. Getting it down to three hours, wow, that, that would really be something. Um, other sleep studies have shown that um, people that have looked at how many hours people sleep and correlated that with numerous different kinds of health outcomes. Um, Studies like that seem to show that seven hours of sleep is a, an ideal period um, that, that shorter than that has, is associated with more bad health outcomes. And even longer than that, like nine hours, is associated with more negative outcomes. Those kinds of studies, though, are, are hard to make a causality conclusion about because it could be that people that sleep nine hours a night do so because they have a medical issue that is associated with a you know a negative medical outcome so the the cause effect thing is different what i i do want to add one other thing though which is that the discovery of the brain glymphatic system i don't know if you guys have heard about that um really changed the way that many of us um in the scientific community and, and, and in psychiatry, I would assume, think about the need for sleep. Um, so this is a, a, a network. So um, it's called glymphatic because um, it's a system that is analogized to the lymphatic system, which is throughout our bodies. So if you think about our blood circulating throughout our bodies, it's under a high pressure system. Blood, uh, the fluid part of our blood is constantly being exuded out from inside the vasculature, out through the walls of the capillaries into the tissue bed. And so how you can't, you have to return that liquid back to the blood, right? You can't have it just going in one direction or we'd all, you know, we'd lose our blood volume, the liquid component of our blood. So it's collected in a lymphatic system and then gets uh, um, dumped back into the blood. Well, only very recently in the past, mm, I'm going to guess ballpark 10 years or so, um, was a similar or an analogous type of system found in the brain. And sleep may be a very important state for the function of this glymphatic system. And it, we think of it as having our early studies and it's not my area of expertise. So I'm just telling you sort of what I've gleaned over time um, it, that it has similar 
properties of collecting fluid, but also maybe collecting waste and, and taking it out of the brain. Um, and the idea is that if this is a process that happens while we sleep, then not having enough sleep doesn't allow adequate time for that process to take place and that that's bad. So um, that's a whole lot of thoughts that I don't know if they directly answer your question. Um, <laughs> anything you feel? Yeah, well, they were fascinating. I've sent you a couple of links on the back channel to the particular articles um, that discuss um, the hematological um, effect of the sleep depth that they use as the argument for using sleep depth training in the military. So you might find those useful. Um, one other question, do you know much about MSH3 and the potential overexpression of it in relation to um, cell damage or cell suicide prevention? It's something I'm looking at at the moment. <laughs> oh, I don't know anything about it. MSH3, I don't, it's not familiar to okay, me. Okay, sorry, thank you. But that was great. And I hope those articles are helpful. Thank you. Uh, now I have to figure out how to access them. Are they in the little... Um, oh, in the back channel. Mm -hmm. You should have a little triangle about two-thirds the way down your screen on the right-hand side, little triangle. You may have a little red number next to it. You just click on that red triangle, well, on the black triangle, and it should open up like a little chat group thing. It's just oh, above the, the mute-unmute. Okay. All right. I'll have to check that out later then. Thank you. Hi, it's Katie speaking. Thank you so much, Money Penny. And just um, Dr. Amelia, you'll also notice if you go to that little, it's like meant to be a little paper aeroplane for the chat box, um, you'll see two folders. So if you're following someone, then you'll see it in just chats. But if you go to the request, if you're not following someone, you'll um, potentially see it there. So thank you so much, Money Penny. Great question. And Thank you for your answer. I also just want to reiterate the sign of a good scientist <laughs> is when they can say that, that that is out of their field of expertise or they're not aware of a study or something like that. Um, you know, we see a lot on this app that people talk about um, areas that they're not qualified in or, you know, aren't aware of studies. Um, so I think that's just a really, really great example of being um a ethical and integral woman in science so thank you for that um michael i see that you're up on stage two we would love to hear from you um and also please everyone feel free to raise your hand or use the chat box um i can read out some of the comments there later but michael we'll turn it to you for your question thank you it's katie i'm complete hey katie uh thanks I, uh, I just uh, was po poking my hair, head in here and you guys were talking about the glial lymphatic system and uh, I, I have a little bit to add to that if you guys want me to, uh, otherwise I don't really have a question, I just wanted to make myself available. Sure, if, if you um, have experience in the lymphatic system and people are interested, I know um, it, I, I'm happy to have you speak on that. So, okay, so I can add a few few things. My my background is in neuroscience, so I haven't specifically studied the glial lymphatic system. I've actually not been uh, actively doing research since it was discovered. Um, but the, in in particular to 
uh, help people get a hold of this. You're everything. I agree with everything that you said so far. It's 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 spot on. Um, a couple of ways to think about the, both the lymphatic and glial lymphatic system is that you know you have blood pressure, and blood pressure is pushing blood through your body, but um, to get more nutrients into your cells and get more waste products out of your cells, the blood pressure actually pushes some fluid out of your bloodstream into the surrounding cells. And then that fluid will get pushed through those cells and through the extracellular fluid, the area right between the cells, into the lymphatic system. And that ultimately drains back into your cardiovascular system at its very lowest pressure point uh, called the vena cava. But um, in the case of the glial lymphatic system, you don't really have blood vessels perfusing the brain quite the same way. There's a whole blood-brain barrier, and the brain is very, very protected. And the brain has a support system. Everybody thinks about the brain in terms of neurons. You hear about neurons all the time, and obviously they're very uh, important, but there's a whole support network of cells. It's like it's like the neurons are the are the stars of the show. There's celebrities, but there's the people that put on you know assemble the stage and do the lighting and just support them in doing their jobs. And those cells are called glia cells. And there's a bunch of different types. And so so the what they do is they. Um, manage the fluid flow through the brain, among many other things. And that's what the glial lymphatic system is. But just like the stagehands at a show, um, they can either be like supporting the play or cleaning up after the play is done. And, you know, if they're changing out the light bulbs and sweeping up the stage and other things like that, you don't want that to happen while the play is going on. And uh, similarly, the, the uh, glial cells in the brain have two, have two roles, actively support the neurons while they're doing their job during waking activity, and then go into a different mode where they're cleaning up. And one of the things that's really fascinating is that, is that in certain phases of deep sleep and certain phases of REM sleep, they're actually seeing pumping action, physical pumping action by these glial cells, in particular the astroglia, pushing fluid through the course of the brain and cleaning things up. And there's preliminary evidence, or at least one line of hypotheses, that part of the problem in Alzheimer's disease may be one of the outlets of the glial lymphatic system called the cribriform plate, one of the areas that it drains into, just like your regular lymph system drains into that vena cava that I mentioned earlier, maybe blocked that basically as we continue to grow throughout the course of our life, our skull literally hardens and the cribriform plate thickens and loses its permeability to fluid and that slows the rate of fluid flow out of the brain and inhibits that circulation. And, uh, and we're finding more and more that this is extremely, uh, extremely important for the brain uh, replenishing itself. And I, I, just would, I just thought that people might be interested in that if they wanted to know more about that system. Wow, that was fascinating. I was very interested, Michael. I'd love to talk to you more about that. <laughs> sure, I'd be glad to. Um, thank you, Michael. And as you were talking, I just looked up um, a neuron line 
at sfn.org, which is the Society for Neuroscience, has a, a quick piece that's easily accessible on describing the glymphatic system. And it states that sleep deprivation affects this system by influencing the location of the astrocyte expressed channel. So astrocytes are those one of those glia that, that Michael was talking about, uh, through which multi, much of the interchange takes place. And I'm, I guess I should, yeah, this, you probably have to read more to know what this is. Aging also disrupts the glymphatic function, which is what Michael was saying. Um, Alzheimer's, the largest risk for Alzheimer's is age. Um, and um, so anyway, this is just in, you know, adding a little more to what Michael was saying. So thank you. Hi, it's it Katie. was my pleasure. Hi, it's Katie speaking. Sorry to interrupt you, Michael. I was just going to say thank you so much for adding value to the stage. That's what I absolutely love about this. You know, everyone can chime in with their different expertise, um, you know, add value and knowledge to the room. Um, really, really appreciate that. I'm also really interested in it and made sure I followed you um, and encourage everyone else to do the same. Um, if you hear any speaker that is of interest and Dr. Amelia is new to Clubhouse, so um, please follow her. I really hope we can have you back. Once again, thank you, Katerina, for organizing such an amazing spe speaker and encourage anyone, if you're liking this conversation, please click the little green Monopoly house at the top of the screen. Um, we would love you to join the Science Society. Katerina has founded this quite recently and it's just been such an amazing series of you know, people that, uh, you know, have great research, sorry, I've got a bug on me, um, sharing their science on here. And um, we'd also love to hear any suggestions of what you would like to speak about, um, hear about and everything like that. Um, we do have Eli and Palmer on stage. Um, as I said, we also have the little chat box, which is in the bottom left-hand corner of your screen. Um, Thank you, Eli and Palmer, for your patience. We did have a question from the audience um, that was um, from Mona. Um, she wants to know, for constant sleep-deprived people, are there certain EEG readings that have been observed? So we would love to hear that um, from you, Dr. Amelia, and anyone else that wants to chime in on that question. Um, and let me know if you need me to repeat that. Thank you. It's Katie and I'm complete. And then we'll turn to Eli, um, Eli and Palmer as well. Um, thank you, Katie. And thank you for the question. Um, I think you said it was Mona. Um, I, it's a great question. And I um, honestly, I'm, I'm afraid I don't know the answer. Um, I, EEG is such a specialized area. Um, and it's it's in the area of expertise of a subset of neurologists and i just don't know but it's a great question and i'm gonna have to look into it after this thank you hi it's katie speaking thank you so much um this is something i am just about to have myself as a long COVID patient um about to have an ei eeg um, on my sleep because of the brain conditions that I have as a result of COVID, not to bring it back to COVID and long COVID all the time. Um, but I also appreciate that answer and really interested to look into it. Um, 
So again, if anyone wants to use the little chat box to ask a question, you're more than welcome. Um, Eli and Palmer, welcome to the stage. Eli, did you have a question that you wanted to ask or chime in in any way? Um, thanks for coming and, you know, great to see you. Thanks, Katie. So uh, I hopped in late, so forgive me if this has been covered, but um, I'm wondering if uh, um, there are any uh, pathways and, and consequently changes in regulation from the uh, serotonin uh, receptor to the, the GABA glutamate balance um, uh, in consequence. changes in, in the regulation of, of the two. Um, hi, Eli. Thank you for your question. I'm trying to think. It sounds like you're very knowledgeable. Um, and um, so, so for those of you who aren't familiar um, with what Eli's talking about, so um, GABA and glutamate are other neurotransmitter systems in the brain. Um, and the um, GABAergic neurons tend to be inhibitory, whereas glutamatergic neurons tend to be excitatory. And what he's talking about in terms of the balance is that these two types of neurons feed back on each other. They have connections between each other and they help maintain the balance. If you get too much excitation, it can be damaging to the brain and we call that excitotoxicity so having the a, a healthy functional network of gabaergic neurons regulating inhibitory having this inhibitory feedback regulation on the glutamatergic neurons keeps everything in balance um, it's a great question about whether how serotonin fits into this um, so what I can tell you uh, it is that serotonin 2A receptors are expressed. We know that they're expressed on excitatory glutamatergic neurons, pyramidal neurons in the cortex, but they are also expressed on some inhibitory GABAergic neurons. Um, and that has been remarkably to me. Um, relatively controversial until pretty recently um, that some experts in the serotonin field have not been convinced that the 2A receptor is expressed on these subtypes of uh, GABAergic neurons, um, but they are. So how does that fit into the circuitry and this balance between excitation and inhibition? I don't know, and I'm not sure if it is known um, because, and I, it's always hard to say that something isn't known because, you know, nobody has read all literature to, to know that it isn't known. But what I can say is that the fact that people that I consider to be experts in serotonin 2A receptor biology um, and electrophysiology um, have told me that they're not convinced that 2A receptors are expressed on GABAergic neurons, and then others have said they are, so that that act of controversy in the field makes me think that this is, um, is still a, an area that isn't well known. Um, 
I'm trying to think. Did that address your question, uh, or did, did, was there another aspect? Well, of that, that definitely addressed the question. Um, part of uh, there are a few reasons I raised it, but part of it is that you know it's thought, or at least when I when I looked at this many years ago last, it's thought that part of the the shift to sleep is the balance between uh, GABA and glutamate. Um, and that, for instance, is why magnesium is, is something that, that can sometimes help people having trouble sleep a little bit because uh, the enzyme that converts glutamate to GABA um, has magnesium as a cofactor. But um, uh, the, the, the motivation for, for the question is, you know, it can can insomnia drive more insomnia is, is sort of the subtext of that via this this little hypothetical uh, relationship. Ah, I see where you're coming from. That's really interesting. Um, it's a great question. I don't know. Um, sleep is so interesting and so complicated. Um, but I hadn't thought about that magnesium, the, that being a potential mechanism whereby magnesium can be helpful for sleep. Um, because I know that people often say that they feel that magnesium is good for sleep. So that's interesting. Um, the other thing that I should point out, to, I don't know if people know, is that the serotonergic system is definitely known to play a critical role in sleep regulation. So the cell bodies of neurons that make serotonin reside in the brainstem in in a region of the brainstem the pons that is very important in regulating sleep um part of the uh, yet um which receptors are playing critical roles in sleep i am not as familiar with um we but we definitely know that serotonin the neurotransmitter is very important in sleep um and that you know, that at least the cell bodies that these these neurons then that their cell bodies reside in the brainstem, but they project throughout all parts of the brain. Um, and there's something else that I was thinking about saying there, but um, now it escapes me. Oh well, another thing for many people, you know, many 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 people take SSRIs, um, serotonin selective reuptake inhibitors. And one of the um, side effects of these medications is that they can cause grogginess the next day. And that's likely because of their actions um, on the serotonin system. So what they do um, is just the, what their name describes, serotonin selective reuptake inhibitors. There's a reuptake transporter that takes serotonin out of the synapse and transports it back into the presynaptic neuron so it can be recycled and used again. If you block that reuptake transporter, the thinking is that that leaves more serotonin in the synapse where it can be acting on serotonergic, serotonin receptors. There are 14, I believe, different types of serotonin receptors. The serotonin 2A receptor is just one of these. So it's a very complicated system. 
um, and my paper really focused just on this one receptor. Um, it's an exciting and important receptor we know, but, um, but the whole system is highly complex. Dr. Amelia, it's Money Penny. Just quickly on long COVID, which Katie and I both share, sadly, not something to be proud of. Um, fluvoxamine and fluoxetine, um, better known as Prozac, um, which obviously are engineered to work on the uh, serotonin uh, uptake, um, are both being used in long COVID research trials. Um, and in fact, the fluvoxamine, um, more so than fluoxetine, is quite um, doing quite well. In, in fact, looking very good as something used to support those uh, with long COVID. And I wondered whether, obviously with your research that you've done, whether or not you might consider looking at that as to whether there's a link, because certainly one of the long COVID uh, well, probably the biggest long COVID issue amongst um, survivors is the gross fatigue, um, a dead feeling of fatigue, like a deep REM sleep. You feel like you've had chloroform put over your face. You are that fatigued. Um, but in particular, um, obviously, we're getting the depressions, the suicide ideation, you know, all the things that would trigger the brain to want to have something like uh, Prozac or whatever. But they are being used in a therapeutic um, way by many of the specialist doctors in the field um, to help with um, the sleep problems. Uh, many people with long COVID cannot sleep at all and others are sleeping far too much and unable to come out of a really, really deep comatose type sleep, um, which seems to relate a bit to what you're talking about. And I just wondered if it might be useful to, to compare the both. Hi, it's Katie speaking. Just really quickly, um, I know that we also have Dr. Rearson here, who was one of the spearheading scientists for the fluvoxamine trials. Um, so she is also an amazing person to speak on this. Sorry, I didn't want to, I don't know if Money Penny had met Dr. Rearson. I'm sure you guys are familiar, but um, I just wanted to point that out. Yeah, but sorry to interrupt just for anyone else in the room. And thank you, Dr. Amelia. Really important topic. And also what I find is interesting, you know, piggybacking off Money Penny's comment is that there's often with um, long COVID patients or COVID survivors, there is that flux between I personally have that myself um, where I cannot sleep for weeks due to some of my symptoms. And then other times I, I literally, nothing could wake me and I'm a mother of two and you know, really used to be fine with no sleep and stuff, but this is just this intense comatose state. And it's interesting that many people have this flux between not being able to sleep and then this comatose state. So anyway, thank you. Sorry for interrupting. Go ahead, Dr. Amelia. And I'm sure Dr. Rearson would love to chime in too. Mm. Um, thank you, Katie. And thank you, Money Penny. Money Penny, I was as soon as you mentioned fluvoxamine, I was going to say, ah, doctor, we have the expert here uh, in Dr. Riesen. So um, for those of you, well, for anybody but us, I guess, Dr. Riesen and I know each other well from um, when we were both, both doing postdoctoral research at Washington University, where she remains on faculty. Um, and I was very excited to hear about her very early and just phenomenal work 
um, in, in using fluvoxamine for prevention of, of well, I'll, I'll just defer to her and let her tell you more about it. But, um, and, and just one quick shout out to Dr. Rearson and, and, you know, women in medicine. Um, I, for those of you who don't know, um, what I loved about her work, and I invited her to speak when her study was just had just come out, her first study, was that this many people at the time in the early days of COVID were just throwing medicines at the disease, understandably, because it was so terrible and we didn't have treatments. But Dr. Rearson used a completely premeditated, thoughtful, logical approach and had, based on her research, her own research and her extensive literature research, had come up with a hypothesis that um, fluvoxamine, because of its anti-inflammatory action, should be therapeutic for um, COVID infection. And designed the study, went to her chair, got the the support to do the study. And it, it's just a beautiful, beautiful story. And it's the way science should work. Um, so the, I um, just to address your question, Money Penny, it's a great suggestion. I should definitely do more thinking about um, these effects of the serotonin system and how these medications that work on the serotonin system might be working, but it's also a huge question and I don't feel like I'm necessarily um, equipped to be able to address it, but maybe working with Dr. Rearson, I could. So let me let me toss the, the baton to you, Angela. Yes, yeah, so, um, you know, these 5-HT2 receptors they may have some relevance here, but but I think it's uh, a bit indirect. So, um, you know, I think I you know I mentioned before. I'm not sure, Money Penny, if you were there at the time, but in in severe acute COVID, a lot of people have uh, autoantibodies to these serotonin five HT two A receptors, uh, which activate those receptors, and um, so the you know the SSRI action of fluvoxamine. Uh, well, you know, it wouldn't necessarily have a direct effect on that because it, it really just uh, prevents um, just the serotonin that your body makes from being taken back up into the um, presynaptic neuron. So, you you know, kind of uh, it increases the signals. So, so if anything, if you were having um, these 5-HC2A receptors being activated more than they should be, then you might think, well, also having an extra serotonin the receptor, maybe that would be bad because it would uh, make things worse. But I think if there is a connection there, um, it is likely related to the uh, platelets because platelets have most of the serotonin in our body in them. And uh, we do know that platelets are hyperactivated in COVID. Um, in acute COVID, and that I've, and I think in many cases of long COVID as well, um, we think that they are um, sometimes activated by um, by immune complexes, actually. So, um, say antibodies binding to antigens, which could be viral proteins or could be other proteins in the body. Um, say if they were 
autoantibodies. Um, the platelets actually take up these immune complexes, and this can trigger the platelets to undergo a programmed cell death, sort of like uh, the, the cell committing suicide. And sometimes they kind of explode and release all their contents, including lots of serotonin. So there may be these cycles going on with COVID and perhaps long COVID where you may suddenly get this uh, burst of excessive serotonin release from platelets. And this may cause a whole bunch of different symptoms. And uh, this can include um, possibly um, some of the hypercoagulable state, you know, blood clots that we see. Um, the 5-HT2A receptor is one of the ones that's on platelets and is part of the signaling of platelet activity. So um, the way that uh, fluvoxamine might help with that aspect of the disease could be because um, it is an SSRI. And this is why fluoxetine, Prozac, might also work. Um, these drugs keep the platelets from taking up serotonin. Then the platelets cannot store the serotonin. And so if they can't store it, then they can't suddenly release a whole platelet serotonin storm when they get hyperactivated. Um, and so we think that, uh, you know, especially a kind of longer term use of the SSRIs could help to prevent this platelet hyperactivation and um, these uh, the sudden release of serotonin that that may occur. Um, and it, it may occur in kind of bursts, like periodically. I've wondered whether um, it's one reason why some people with long COVID will have relapses. You know, they'll have times when they're doing a lot better and then they'll have times when they get worse. And, you know, I do wonder if for some people that could be because of sudden release of serotonin from the platelets. Um, and then this could certainly uh, theoretically have some effect on things like um, um, sleep and, um, you know, abnormal involuntary movements and mood and, you know, even things like, uh, yeah, I mean, just a lot of different symptoms that could be affected, gastrointestinal symptoms, who knows, it really would depend on where those platelets are, I think, when they release that uh, serotonin, uh, elevated serotonin in the blood isn't necessarily going to affect the brain. But if these platelets were in brain capillaries, especially if there's a lot of inflammation, and maybe there's some breakdown of the blood brain barrier, then it might be possible for some of those that serotonin to be increased in the synapses because of the platelet hyperactivity, though usually um, the, the serotonin in the synapse is affected more by what is released um, by the neurons themselves and, and whether you know, that is um, taken back up quickly or metabolized quickly. Um, there's several other mechanisms, though, of course, of fluvoxamine and, and the reason why we originally decided to use it for COVID um, doesn't have to do with its SSRI effect, but it's binding to the sigma-1 receptor, which gives it an anti-inflammatory action. I'm done speaking if there's no further questions on that. Hi, it's Katie speaking. Thank you for that amazing answer. And also, Dr. Rissen, you know, I know you and I have spoken about it before, um, but you just brought up the point too. As I said, you know, I have, I seem to go between not being able to sleep. Um, and it's often when I have almost seizure-like symptoms. Um, and, you know, you've just Absence made... Absence seizures, are they, Katie? Absence Absolutely. Seizures. 
That's what I'm getting. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. And you've just made me think about that. Um, Dr. Rissom, we've also been speaking in the back channel. We'd also love to have you back in this community and give a talk. If you're up for it, we can chat about that later. Um, but yeah, that's, I don't know, given me a lot of thought. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on that myself. So we should um, maybe talk about that again. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and as I've said to you, and, and sorry to distract from the conversation, but, you know, it's a really important thing because it's not like um, just like a little people call it, you know, restless leg or when you have that sleeping thing where you kind of jerk. Like I, I have full on almost seizures in my sleep and it prevents me from sleeping. So I'm really interested in this topic. Um, so, so Eli, if- if um, I could ask, is is this like myoclonus? Sorry, Eli, I couldn't hear. It, um, what you're experiencing, is that like myoclonus? It sounds like it might be. Um, I, I mean, I would say to, you know, I, I have long COVID myself. And when I have a relapse, I have excessive sleepiness and I have increased myoclonus, um, which uh, can occur, you know, even when I'm awake, but is more common when I'm sleepy. And, you know, this is, this is a very interesting thing that I've heard from others as well, uh, which I think needs further study. Yeah, absolutely. Um, bruises on my head, little bruises and gashes where I've thrashed around in my sleep. Um, and I wake up and it looks like I've been attacked or something. So um, the, the my, one thing, you know, I, I'm not an expert on it at all, but one thing that, uh, um, I have reason to suspect, I'll just leave it at that, uh, um, that might be involved with that is precisely that shift uh, between GABA and glutamate uh, during sleep onset. Interesting. Very interesting. Hi, it's Katie speaking. Oh, sorry, Dr. Wilson, go ahead. Um, I mean, there's there's a lot of interesting stuff to uh, <laughs> discuss about that. Actually, um, you know, the the SSRIs are known to, in some people, increase uh, myoclonus. Myoclonus can be a um, a symptom if you um, are taking too high of a dose, for example, um, and it's something that can also be seen in serotonin syndrome caused by medications that end up increasing the uh, serotonergic uh, neurotransmission. That one interesting thing, though, about COVID is, you know, a lot of people with COVID who aren't taking any serotonergic medications will develop symptoms that look a lot like serotonin symptoms, uh, serotonin syndrome, but they're not because they're not taking any of these drugs. And, uh, you know, we think that this may be because of this hyperactivity of the platelets that sometimes they release massive amounts of serotonin um, uh, during a severe uh, acute COVID. And, um, you know, this has been studied and there's been papers published on it. Um, and I, you know, I, I do think that uh, since this may occur in, in kind of spurts or bouts, um, you know, that, that, that could be one reason why some people have these periodic um, bouts of these abnormal movements and sleepiness and, and um, other symptoms. And so one of the things we're looking into, uh, first of all, the, the SSRIs, even though they might in some cases increase myoclonus, they could help in this situation because they're keeping the platelets from releasing the serotonin. And then the other thing is there are a number of drugs that uh, block 
serotonin receptors. And these drugs may be useful to test as uh, treatments for both acute and long COVID because of their ability to block the effects of the serotonin if excessive serotonin is released from the platelets. So there are uh, there are studies, for example, looking at ciproheptadine, which um, is a serotonin antagonist and also an antihistamine. And, uh, and we're looking at other drugs too that may have uh, similar benefits, maybe binding to other serotonin receptors. Done speaking. Um, when that's, that's interesting that you brought up Angela, the, um, serotonin syndrome, because that's what I was thinking when, um, Katie and Moneypenny were talking about the myoclonus. Um, but I have never heard of, well, I haven't actually seen that many cases of serotonin syndrome, but do people have the degree of myoclonus that would cause this, what Moneypenny was describing as having bruises and gashes. I have never heard of that, but anyway, it's intriguing yeah. that this could potentially be a mechanism. I, I, can I, I sleep on a sofa. Sorry, I sleep on a settee because it's low. It's less dangerous. Um, I live on my own. So it's only when somebody came over and stayed for a little while, they saw me going into an absence seizure. And I literally had to set up cameras and become more aware of what was going on. And I literally was waking up thinking one of my little dogs had been sort of trying to get me to wake up because I had scratches and bruises on my forehead. But on the camera, when I recorded me sleeping on the settee, I was thrashing my right arm. And then occasionally with my watch or a ring or a fingernail, just scratching and bashing my own head, literally. Push, literally, I was pushing myself. I was thumping myself. <laughs> Yeah, now I would be careful about using the word seizures because usually that's used to mean uh, like where there's epileptic activity. We don't know that based on, um, you know, making those movements. If it's myoclonus, or, then, um, you know, it could just be severe myoclonus, which sometimes can be caused by epileptic activity, but it can also be caused by other things. But, but I wouldn't be surprised to see a pretty severe myoclonus with long COVID because, you know, I'm, I'm on some... Uh, Facebook groups that have a lot of people with uh, um, long COVID. Uh, I've seen a lot of them will post videos of myoclonic jerks that they are having. Um, I would say probably my worst uh, episode of a um, long COVID relapse. Then, yeah, I mean, my left arm, it, it just like flings way out. It's almost like a hemibolismus sometimes. Um, yeah, so I mean, I think definitely for some people, this may be something that is that is that is going on, um, and it, I'm not sure it could be related to uh, serotonin hyperactivity of platelets. There could be other causes as well. Yeah, my right. GP told me I'd got tennis elbow as a result of overextending my elbow because literally when I was thrashing around, it would normally be an elbow or an arm thrash as though my arm was going over the top of my head. And then I couldn't get my arm to come back over the top of my head into position, which I think is something to do with the rheumatoid arthritis. Um, but yeah, literally, I would bring my arm over and, and then whack myself in the head uh, or cut myself slightly or do something like that. Um, but at the time, I, I, you know, I'm on fluoxetine and have been for 20 years. Um, as well as uh, gabapentin and obviously uh, beta blockers and heart and tachycardia medication. So all in all, I think maybe, you know, that combination 
uh, doesn't see, doesn't seem so good. So when I came off the beta blockers and reduced the fluoxetine, I didn't seem to have the trouble so much. Quick question: Myoclonus is a type of seizure, or how are we defining this? So myoclonus is just like a rapid muscle jerk. Um, it it's not necessarily a seizure. It can be caused by epileptic activity. So sometimes it can be a seizure, but it can be caused by other things as well. It is an involuntary movement that is a rapid uh, jerk type of movements. So it, it can occur pretty much anywhere in the body, but it's it's pretty common for it to occur in the like the arm, like the shoulder, the neck, um, and uh, yeah, it, it is something that is seen in um, serotonin syndrome, which is uh, caused by medications, which kind of interact to increase um, uh, serotonin neurotransmission to an excessive degree. Um, and then it, there, as I said before, there there are people with acute COVID who develop symptoms that look very much like serotonin syndrome. Um, even though they're not taking any of these medications that would cause serotonin syndrome. And um, anecdotally, um, I've heard of cases where they have responded to um, serotonin antagonists such as ciproheptidine. So there, there are a couple of clinical trials going on right now looking at ciproheptidine for treatment of COVID, uh, partly because of this. That, that sounds really interesting. Uh, Katerina, could you bring uh, Leslie up? And just to also clarify, in case people may not know, a seizure is result of um, out of control neuronal activity, brain activity. So your your neurons in your brain are firing very, very rapidly and out of control, um, and it spreads. So it's uh, it's so that's the distinction. What Dr. Rearson was saying was that. Uh, just because you're having the motor activity, it could be a result of um, originating somewhere other than in the brain. Whereas a seizure, you detect using an EEG that measures the activity of the neurons or the neurons firing in your brain. And that's, you need to have that to, to be able to define the origin of the muscle movements as being out of control brain activity. I hope that makes sense. Makes a lot so, of sense, definitely, yeah. So I wanted to uh, comment briefly on my uh, experience with uh, myoclonus. Uh, I've been on MAOIs uh, for uh, phenylzine for uh, over the last decade. Um, and uh, I found that it is really excessive coffee use, which does affect the uh, GABA um, glutamate uh, balance that uh, has really triggered uh, starting in on the myoclonus. Uh, so uh, I, I was no longer able to tolerate my uh, typical dosage of uh, between 45 to 60 milligrams a day. Um, so I had to go to uh, other boosters, uh, but now I'm back on that. And I and now that I've backed off caffeine, uh, I n no longer have uh, 
as severe of myoclonus, uh, especially the, fortunately I'm not thrashing around in the same manner, it sounds like some people are, but uh, repeated full body uh, uh, curling into a ball, uh, every, you, you know, repeatedly uh, uh, as some of the worst symptoms. So it's not always serotonin syndrome. Uh, I, I really think that uh, combined serotonin pathways with, uh, again, the GABA glutamate could really be a key factor. Because sleep onset was was like the worst time for that. Definitely, yeah. So, um, but I'm realizing looking back that uh, living with Eli, who is uh, an inveterate coffee drinker, really upped my baseline caffeine. So, uh, probably uh, eventually that uh, changed my. Uh, GABA and glutamate balance of transmitters and that it was game over for a while but I'm back in balance now most of the time fortunately because not only the myoclonus is unpleasant but 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 you can feel this pretensing of the muscles which is almost worse it's it, it's like a sneeze that you know it's going to happen and there's nothing you can do to stop it yeah, if you remember too, I, I mentioned that a lot of people with COVID will have these um, autoantibodies to um, various uh, neuronal proteins, including the 5-HT2A serotonin receptor. And I'm not sure if that can cause abnormal movements. I wouldn't be surprised if it could. Um, but I, I think this is something that really needs further study. Yeah, that's fascinating. I couldn't even pronounce it, but I've just looked at my medical records from my last set of um, blood tests, and I was diagnosed with hypergamma globulinemia for autoimmune connective tissue disease. Um, whether or not we can relate that, but it popped out of the blue. So <laughs> that's kind of interesting what everyone's talking about. I had a quick question. Uh, going on sleep regulation and all sorts of downstream effects. As far as I understand, um, during the sleep cycle, beta, beta amyloid plaques are cleared from the brain. So what, were there any findings, and you probably weren't looking at this, but I was curious if you had looked at this during uh, your study, Dr. Amelia, uh, the role of beta amyloid plaques in sleep, and also, did you observe any changes in body temperature between the groups in the study? Wow, um, that's interesting. Okay, so um, first the amyloid beta. So beta amyloid is produced normally um, by cells in the brain and it when it accumulates that's when we call them plaques. Uh, um, so th there's a difference between just the protein being expressed in the cells and then collecting into the plaques. And the plaques are um, evidence or what we think, well, they're highly associated. They are a pathologic characteristic of um, Alzheimer's disease. Um, and there's still it's still unknown whether they cause Alzheimer's disease or whether they're a result. Um, but 
so you're you bring up a great point, Denis, that beta amyloid itself is is um, cleared during sleep, and there's a lot of thought that the lymphatic system is playing a role in this. Um, the the entire plaques aren't. I just want to clarify for people that may not know this, but the plaques themselves, they're pretty resistant. So they it's um, they don't get completely cleared, but it's probably beta amyloid that's that's not fully conglomerated into the plaques yet that's being cleared. But overall, we think of clearance of beta amyloid as being really important to avoid it developing into these plaques. And so therefore, to be a beneficial process to prevent development of Alzheimer's disease. Um, that's um, not something that we looked at in this study. Um, I am. How would not... you even assay for it? Question mark. Yeah. So there are great antibodies that people use to look at um, beta amyloid, um, but mice. So that's like it a very extensively studied area um, by people that basically study neurodegenerative disorders, dementia, and Alzheimer's disease specifically. Um, what I can tell you is that it's hard to get mice. So this, my study was done in mice. It's hard to get mice to develop these plaques and the other characteristic, the other neuropathologic characteristic Interesting. of Alzheimer's, which is, which is, um, tangles and they have to so they have mutant mice that have to carry up to three between three and five separate mutations that increase risk for alzheimer's disease in order to get the mice to develop the plaques and tangles um so i i haven't didn't look at that in this study again getting to um the the point you guys are asking great questions but um, due to costs and time and everything, it's hard to look at, at many different things. Beyond um, and the then scope. you had a second. Oh, pardon? Beyond the scope. <laughs> yeah, right. That's a good answer. Beyond the scope. And then you had a second part to your question that was then, I don't remember. Yeah, it was about body temperature changes because all of this discussion about um, mental health conditions, uh, as far as I understand, there is some correlation with changes in body temperature. So for example, <clears throat> um, I think that schizophrenia patients on average have a lower body temperature, especially when they're having peak sort of symptomology, if I'm not wrong. Hmm. I don't know about um, any findings of abnormalities in, in body temperature in schizophrenia per se, but interestingly, we've been talking about serotonin syndrome, which is a basically, and I don't think we ever defined it, but it's um, essentially a situation in which you get too much serotonin in the brain. I, um, I don't know whether it, you know, we think of it as being from too much serotonin in the brain. And one aspect of that is an elevation in body temperature. Um, so that's an interesting potential correlation with our prior conversation and with serotonin. Yeah, um, thank you so much, Amelia. I know you have been talking for over two hours. So um, yeah, we want to um, 
all thank you very much for your time and sharing your knowledge and your research with us uh, this was an amazing room i hope you come back um, and dr ryerson also thank you for helping and for um, helping with your expertise and maybe the both of you would like to come back at some point and do another room together maybe uh, that would be really cool and um, yeah thanks everyone for all your questions we really appreciate it and um, follow the club science society we have um, we have a lot of guest speakers um, coming in so uh, we have almost like during the week almost every day um, um, great scientists presenting their research tomorrow we have dr mola she will she's the first author of the um, study repeated low doses of lsd in healthy adults and then on friday um, and then we have dr needham uh, talking about anxiety linked to gut microbiometabolite and um, yeah so um, come back and um, yeah i hope you had a great evening and you enjoyed this very much your first big experience on clubhouse amelia and we really appreciate it thank you uh, um, i just said an article about the temperature increase in the amyloid discussion we were having um i've just sent you a copy of the article it's fascinating i've just scan read it to uh, denise uh amelia anybody else that wants it i'm happy to send it on thank you um thank you so much and um, Katrina, thank you so much for the invitation. Um, it was great to be introduced to Clubhouse and your amazing room that you've put together in this amazing um, science society. And I've learned so much um, and I so enjoyed everybody's participation. Thank you all for coming and for your great questions. And I love the discussion. So I will be back. I would love to come back. And, um, and I will also start looking out for the other you sounds like you have a great lineup of scientists coming so thank you very much yeah thank you so much um okay i'll close the room in three two one bye everyone have a good night morning or day wherever you are bye thanks everyone.